Let's uh, bring you up to speed with the latest happenings from COP27, now in its second week, and we are catching up with the head of the Presidential Climate Finance Task Team, Mr. Daniel Mnele. Daniel, thanks so much for your time and thanks for joining the uh, market update. So this is week two of COP, and I'd like your impressions of how the conference has been so far and uh, your key takeaways from it. Thank you very much. I just returned yesterday from spending a week in Sharm el-Sheikh. So I was part of only the first week of the conference, which uh, extends over uh, two weeks. And the first part of the conference was mainly dominated by the leader summit and um, those kind of issues. The real core of the negotiations in terms of the climate negotiators is what this second week is going to be about. So the first week was essentially about setting uh, the scene um, as such. And I think the key issues that were discussed and which you can see are going to be coming to the fore in terms of the negotiations is really about financing, making sure that uh, previous commitments from Uh, developed countries to help developing countries as they transition and to make financing available are being adhered to, that um, the uh, developed countries are held uh, accountable in that regard. And and the next big piece, I think, which featured last week and will dominate this week will be one of saying, let us please move beyond undertakings, beyond commitments beyond promises to action, to implementation, which will be impactful and felt on the ground. I think that's what are going to be the key issues, apart from, of course, other big issues that have to do with the whole complex of what is referred to as loss and damage, which basically says, in addition to focusing on mitigation and adaptation measures, how do we deal with the realities of today and the damage and the loss and the suffering that's been experienced as a result of the impacts of, of, of climate change as they have and are registering today. Mm-hmm. Daniel, I imagine that you would have gone there uh, to Egypt with, with an agenda and a list of items that you wanted to uh, take off or achieve, as it were. So in terms of your stay... Did you achieve everything that you set out to do? As in, I mean, how many of those boxes can you now tick and uh, how many are perhaps still in progress? Fifi, I'm very pleased to be able to say to you all of those boxes and more. Mm. (laughs) Not that I went there with too many boxes. Really, my role, first and foremost, was following the launch of our Just Energy Transition Investment Plan in South Africa on the 4th of November uh, through a special seating of the Presidential Climate Commission. The investment plan was officially presented to the leaders of our international uh, partners group on the 7th and subsequent to that, of course, to the broader international community. So my role was to sit on panels, to have bilateral meetings in which we unpacked 
to the international audiences the features of our investment plan, uh, talking to how we're thinking about how investments would be sequenced, how they'll be financed across the three priority sectors, how we will weave through and mainstream through the investment plan, and the very central feature of the just uh, transition. And I'm pleased to say that the plan was very well received, was widely welcomed by the international uh, community, and was endorsed by, obviously, the leaders of the uh, the International Partners Group, but also by a group of philanthropies and by the organization called GFENS, which is a an association, an alliance that was formed in Glasgow and last year um, for net zero amongst our financial institutions, a very powerful group mm-hmm. uh, that has potential to be very catalytic and play a very important role given that by now I think the group encompasses 155 members which are have something like like $150 trillion under the management. So the critical point of being able, as part of the implementation process, to use the scarce public resources to crowd in the much bigger pools that sit in the public and the private sector markets, where those discussions that, that we had. So from that point of view, I was very happy that um, the plan was well received. Lots of talks about this being a brown a groundbreaking initiative, pioneering exercise, and of course, what we've always said is we hoped that at the very least, uh, this would provide a basis upon which others can build, but in similar situations, given that this is the first of its kind that we embarked on, uh, but it looked like many people were so happy to say, look, this seems like a benchmark, this seems to be like a model that we can follow, although one, of course, has to accept that there are country-specific circumstances that doesn't make a you know a plan like this a one-size-fits-all. But uh, to answer your question, I, I was very happy with the way in which we were received and how the plan uh, was welcomed uh, quite broadly by the international community. Mm. So this time, around this time uh, last year, at the previous COP conference, we learned of the uh, $8.5 billion commitment that had been made by the... Just Energy Transition Partners, the UK, US, France, Germany and the EU towards South Africa's uh, greener path, as it were. But uh, I think the full details of that have up until now, over a year later, been been a bit thin in terms of the full T's and C's and uh, how much of this money is uh, loan money, how much of it is uh, grant money. Is there anything you can tell us? right now? Any new developments around that particular package? Yeah, I mean, that is essentially what we were presenting. So the full plan is out. It extends to somewhere around 200 pages and sets out all the information with regard to the composition of the funding, the contribution that the individual partner countries will be making, the distribution across uh, instruments, whether it's grants, whether it's commercial loans, whether it's guarantees, and we're putting all that out uh, in this <clears throat> uh, plan. Um, so all that information is now out in the open. As we've indicated, we have produced a plan that does not speak only to the eight and a half billion, the initial eight and a half billion that our partners had committed to mobilize, but it's a plan that sets out South Africa scale of need for the first five years into which then the partners contribute 
their commitment on the strength of the quality of this investment plan. So it includes a distribution between the, uh, uh, the allocation between the three priority sectors being electricity sector, new energy vehicles, and green hydrogen, and goes into a fair amount of details in terms of uh, the various investments that are needed, including alongside the technical investment, the just investments that will make sure that those workers and those communities that would be most impacted by the phase-down of coal are taken care of and their interests are adequately considered in the short term, but also in the longer term that as part of economic diversification and re-engineering our economy on the basis of a whole society, whole economy approach uh, that is then is also part and parcel of informing a new growth and development model, a greener, more sustainable model, as we decarbonize um, to meet our our international commitments. Mm -hmm. Just lastly, uh, Daniel, all this money coming our way in the terms of support for the just energy transition and the money specifically that's coming as as loans. So so does this not risk... uh, fueling another crisis further down the track and a crisis of, of, of debt. I mean, what's, what's the thinking around the ability to be able to pay all of this back in future? One of the issues that right at the outset when we started thinking about how we would approach these negotiations, particularly with regard to the financing package to underpin any investment plan, was to work out a set of principles, a, a guiding principle for how we would approach the financing package and came up, um, as you'd see in the plan, with nine of them, uh, which I won't go through all of them, but some of the critical ones include, for instance, making sure that any financing package that we agree upon speaks to and takes into account our fiscal realities and challenges from a point of view of affordability and sustainability. And you're quite right. You have to be alive to the fact that while you are trying to solve one set of problems that have to do with climate change risks and migrating our economy to a low-carbon economy, a more climate-resilient society, you do not inadvertently create another problem in the form of loading up uh, with climate-related debt and, and obviously putting a burden on future generations in that regard. So that was one principle that we had to make sure that this fits in with our fiscal frameworks as they evolve. And as a result of that, the National Treasury would have been and was a very important a partner in developing this financing uh, plans. The other issue as well in terms of uh, a principle was that any debt-related terms need to be on more attractive terms than the government could raise. So high level of concessionality um, such that um, we can, if we have to take on debt, that it's at least affordable and it's not more expensive. And last week, the Treasury did actually issue a statement to demonstrate because the first two of this concession uh, concessionary loans were actually signed and, uh, on the fringes of, of, of COP uh, to the tune of two loans from the French and the Germans at 300 euros apiece. 
and the Treasury actually put out the numbers and the terms and conditions to show that these are significantly uh, more advantageous in terms of terms than they could um, secure in the market. And I guess the final point I wish to make, which is a very important one, Mm -hmm. is when it comes to the T's and C's that you asked about, of course, with every lending and every borrowing, whether it's you for your car and me for my house, there are T's and C's that apply, and lenders want to satisfy themselves that you know, funds are being used appropriately and they can be repaid and so forth. But what is important to highlight is that these are not conditionalities that would result in South Africa losing sort of sovereignty and flexibility with regard to its own policies and uh, the ones that people tend to worry about when they talk about conditionality. So there is nothing in there that will restrict uh, that. So the policy, sovereignty and policy flexibility remain firmly in the hands of the South African government. All right. That's good to know. Daniel, thanks so much for your time, Sir Daniel Mnele, the head of the Presidential Climate Finance Task Team.